LifeWay Leadership Podcast Network. This is the Unseen Leadership Podcast, where we explore the unseen stories that shaped leaders into who they are today. Leaders are formed in the leading. So if you're having a challenge right now, it's not that you miss, messed up or missed a class or didn't read a book or missed some insight. It, this is actually normal. It's really normal for you because you became a leader right after you were good at something that was not leading. Well, welcome to the Unseen Leadership Podcast. I am your host, Chandler Vinoy, here with my co-host, Dan Knighton. Hey, what's up, Chandler? We're excited today to talk with Todd uh, Bolsinger, who is a speaker, executive coach, uh, former pastor, and author who serves as associate professor of leadership formation at Fuller Seminary. He's also the author um, whose books include uh, Canoeing the Mountains and Tempered Resilience. Uh, Todd, so great to have you on the podcast today. It's nice to be with both of you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, it's, you know, I know that, you know, we read your bio. It sounds like you are big into the leadership space. Well, love to hear you know what does it actually look like as your your day-to-day what is what does it look like for you as you are teaching you're coaching you're writing what is what does your world look like these days yeah so I, I sometimes joke that I'm a little bit like a doctor who has my own medical practice and then I get to teach <laughs> and do research at the med school <laughs> but, but instead of <laughs> medical it's it's theological and it's leadership in churches um, so I have a consulting practice that works with churches and nonprofits and schools we do consulting with some universities and some NGOs and some, a lot of churches and denominations. And then we, I've got all doctor of ministry students who are all working projects in the same area. And I've got a big grant to basically figure out how to take the learning that we develop and make it available to, you know, most of the churches in the country are under 250 people. So they really can't afford big consulting firms. And so Mm -hmm. we're trying to figure out how to make all that material and resources available to them. Oh man, that's awesome. Well, that's where you are today. Let's, let's hop in here. You know, excited Mm -hmm. to to hear a little bit more about your story. So can you just walk us through a quick overview of the different leadership roles that you've been in over the years that have led you to where you are today? Yeah. Yeah. So when I was in high school, um, I was raised in a Roman Catholic family. My grandfather's name is Guido Evangelist. That's true. Um, so I'm, even though awesome. even though my, my last name is German, the last German guy in the family had the name. My mom's side of the family is mostly um, Italian. And so we have a kind of a proud Italian heritage. When I was in high school, I came to a personal faith in Jesus. And when I was in college, I joined Youth for Christ staff doing youth evangelism. And um, when I was 23, Hollywood Presbyterian Church invited me to become their college minister. And they said, you're going to run out of those little youth talk shows. You do by Christmas, so we're going to send you to seminary, and so they did. They they sent me to seminary, and they paid for it. And I, wherever I speak, I tell a story about a church that invested in me when I was a little more than just some enthusiasm and arrogance. And I was great because I ran out of those talks by by Thanksgiving. So I was <laughs> You're like, they're right. <laughs> there was they were right. So uh, so I went to seminary just to learn to, to teach the Bible, and it really was that's what it was about. And I ended up getting an MDiv and a PhD, and I ended up getting ordained the Presbyterian Church and after 10 years at Hollywood Presbyterian I became the senior pastor of a church in San Clemente and I was there 17 years and so when my kids graduated from high school or both graduated from high school I began to ask some larger questions about what I'm supposed to do next and and I've always done a bunch of work in the leadership formation space um, mostly doing work through the seminary 
And I begun to work with a consulting group, um, a group that came in and worked with me. They hired me to do some work with them. And so that started my, me on the path of really working on organizational change. I'd done some stuff with my church and my denomination and then other churches. And it's kind of been that way ever since. So, um, for the last 10 years, I've been at Fuller Seminary, both in their senior administration and now running a church leadership institute. And then that's where I do the research. And then I got my own consulting firm that does the coaching and consulting. You know, Todd, hearing, hearing you say all that, it sounds like you started out on the trajectory, went to seminary, was in the pastoral uh, lane. When did, you know, I think a lot of times it's easy for, for somebody who's a pastor to, to read up on leadership, to be interested in it. But then there's a point where for you, pastoring was a passion, but it sounds like leadership is also a passion as well. How, how did that shift look? And, you know, even for somebody who's in pastoral ministry, how should they, how can they view leadership in that space of like, man, I'm pastoring and leadership. How do you grow in both of those things and how do they relate together? Well, every time I, what I realized was without even unconsciously, when, whenever I started a ministry, I formed a leadership team. And so I was always, I mean, I just do team. That's what I do. Like if you put me, gave me, if you put me in charge of anything, I'm going to build a team. And so I realized that that's what I was doing anyway. And for me, the move toward more intentionally doing leadership development and leadership writing was because of my own challenge. I, I'd worked with a church that had grown and it doubled in size. We had over 10 consecutive years of growth. And I had a crisis where the very best people in my church did not want to be part of my leadership team. So this, I didn't know what to do about that. I didn't know why were the metrics going all the right direction and the morale was going down. Wow. And that's where I was stuck. And so that's when I got a coach and that's when I ended up bringing in a consulting firm to help me look at it. And that's really where I learned about adaptive leadership, which is what I'm doing now, which is how do you lead when you, when you don't have best practices, when the, when the environment has changed in such a way that you have to change your leadership style and you have to actually learn to lead all over again. And that's what was happening for me. We had a church that was going in the right direction, but the morale was going down. That was like the early indicator that we were going to run into some things that were going to go beyond my expertise. And I just needed to learn to lead a different way. That's fascinating coming out of COVID where I feel like a lot of people are in that space where leading before COVID is very different than leading after COVID. So that's really yeah. interesting. To, you know, I wanted to ask you, you know, can you tell us about a pivotal moment that you look back on that changed your leadership and your life? It might've been what you were just talking about, but is there, is it that or some something else for you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was the big one. Um, I mean, the single biggest one was to have like literally have the consultant who came to work with me say, everybody in this church talks about you and they're really grateful. You're the leader, but they all think they're in you at your ministry. Mm-hmm. And, and I realized unconsciously I had created what I sometimes sheepishly refer to as Todd Bolsinger Ministries at San Clemente Presbyterian Church. And I realized that there is something, and this becomes even more important today, there is something that it's hard to get your healthiest, most mature, best leaders to be excited about just supporting you as a person. They want to be part of something bigger than themselves, and it's not you, it's God. They want to be part of doing something for the kingdom, not for a person. And I can tell you with all honesty that I'd never intended 
to make the ministry about me, but that I didn't know any other way. I, I had been taught in leadership that it's all about my casting a vision, my calling people to ministry, my holding them accountable, my hiring a team. It was about my vision, and that's what was beginning to fall short. And so I had this really dramatic moment where I had to decide either, I mean, the, the consultant was great. He goes, look, you can do nothing and everybody's going to be happy. And then when the church falls, falls apart after you leave, they'll all talk about what a great leader you are, but you won't leave fruit in the, in the vineyard. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or you can leave now and put them in a crisis and they'll have to figure it out. Or you can learn to stay with them and learn to lead differently. And that's what I've been doing ever since. That's, that's exactly what I do today. And COVID, you're right, accelerated that. Every leader I know had to learn how to lead in a totally different world. And they had to decide, am I still going to stay here and learn to lead differently? Or am I going to quiet quit or leave or get out? Or am I just going to double down on what I know and just paddle harder, even if I'm in a river that there isn't any water? You know, hearing you say that, you know, a lot of young leaders are listening to this podcast and for their sake, you know, and, and for my sake as well, I, I would, I would hope that we hear that from your story and go, okay, well, how do I make sure where I'm leading, where the Lord has me, maybe it's pastoral ministry, maybe it's something else. How do I not structure and how do I not lead so where that everything is built upon me? So they're like, you know, that consultant came in, you kind of know what it looked like. You're teaching this now. What are maybe two to three things that you should focus on and do differently to make sure this is going to outlast me? And, you know, when I leave, there will be a vineyard of fruit, not just a wake of me leaving. Yeah, so it's really interesting. We get asked a lot as our company to come in, hey, will you help us do a strategic plan? Or will you help us clarify our vision or our mission or help us go through a transition? And we tell them every time, we can write you a strategic plan, but what we really teach you how to do is how to develop the adaptive capacity for every strategy you'll ever have. So ours is about forming people in adaptive leadership. This is what my books are about, which is adaptive leadership is the leadership you need when you can't rely on your best practices. And so one of the things I'd say to younger leaders is remember that your best practices, and they're important, your ability to handle the scriptures well, be the person who cares for people's souls, run good meetings, all those things, those are really important. They build trust. And without trust, there's no transformation. So you need to be trustworthy. You squander that in either immorality or bad leadership or uh, not handling things well. You lose trust. You need trust for transformation. But trust is not transformation. You being a highly trusted leader doesn't mean anybody's being changed. As a matter of fact, sometimes it means they'll let you, they will let you be the proxy for their formation. And what you have to learn is how to figure out how to invest that trust in calling people toward genuine transformation. And that's what adaptive leadership does well. And that's the work that our consulting group does with people all over the, all over the world now. It's helpful. I'm, I'm, I'm just curious, you know, before we jump to the next question, Chandler, you know, as, as culture today kind of tells us, you know, we're successed by the size of our church, we're, we're judged by how many Twitter followers we have, all those sorts of things. Like, what, what are some of the best ways that you've seen people be able to combat against that, against like, this is my ministry, this is, this is actually God's ministry that I'm a part of in this church. Is there, is there any sort of best practices with that? Well, um, so you, you heard me use the say best practices, right? So best practices is what yeah. we rely on the best. So what I, what 
what I sometimes think about is those best practices are trustworthy, but here's the, here's the capacity you have to have, which is the most important thing about our fruitfulness is that we are faithful to our mission. So Mm -hmm. is the mission. So obviously the mission always wins. It's the mission, not the pastor, not the congregant, not the, the people, the path, the voices of the past, not the people it's, it's the mission. So getting clarified on what our mission is. So I'll give you an example of one church I'm working with. They're one of my favorite clients. They're a church in a, in a Southern urban city that has been changing demographically to become much more multi-ethnic because it's had in many of the, you know, many of the Southern urban areas have become much more diverse than in the rural areas. Right. So it's become much more, they have a conviction that they're to be a missional church. And what they mean by that is we are going to minister to our neighbors, whoever God brings to us, we're going to minister to. So there are about 2000 members today and they are, have the most diverse staff I've ever seen in a church that wasn't Seventh-day Adventists. Seventh-day Adventists are really diverse, but but they have a really diverse staff. They've done, it's it's really remarkable how they have begun to reflect their neighborhood. They only have one problem. And the problem is that a really, really gifted pastor preaches to 500 empty seats. And the reason why he does is they are 2,000 members, but 20 years ago, they were 5,000. So the struggle he has today is he's got people sitting there in his pew saying, if you stop all this ethnic stuff, we could be 5,000 members again. We can get a bunch of people to drive in from the suburbs to be here. Hmm. But he said, our conviction is to minister to our neighbors. Our neighbors look like this. We're going to minister to our neighbors. That's our mission. Their board is with them. Everybody's lined up on this except for the disappointed people who remember when they built the building thinking they were going to be 10,000 members. And that's what they have to give up is what is you have to give up an old vision for what fruitfulness looks like today. And that's really by clarifying your mission. Yeah. I love that. The mission always wins. I I really like that quote. Stick with me. Todd, I know there, I know along the way on your leadership journey, there was only a few mistakes, but as you look back, what would you say was your biggest mistake as a leader getting started? Well, getting started, my biggest mistake was believing that I could outwork or out talk any problem. I'm a good talker, you know, so I was, you know, first time I ever preached to a group of folks, I was 18 years old. So I had those gifts and, and then I was a pretty hard worker and I was a good student. So I figured I could outwork, out talk and outthink almost anybody. And that I thought that to be the best leader, I had to be the, I had to be the smartest guy in the room. And that wasn't just when I was young. That is still a challenge for me today. Like, like the hardest thing for me today is owning that the group is smarter than I am, that I'm not here to impress anybody. I'm here to express what God wants to do. And so, you know, that my old, my old best practices are to out talk, out think and outwork everybody. And most of the time it doesn't actually get you anywhere. It exhausts you. And it, and even if you're successful, then people think you're amazing, but they haven't been transformed. I'm curious, you you know, you're, you're an author, you're a professor. I'm sure there's, um, you have a lot of, of book suggestions, uh, for young leaders out there, but what's one book that you wish somebody gave you when you were just starting to lead? Well, it was a book somebody did give me. It was my coach. The guy that coached me, um, his name's Jim Osterhaus. There's a book called Thriving Through Ministry Conflict by Jim Osterhaus and Joe Drakowski. And it's a great book because it 
really helps you recognize that most of the time when you're in ministry conflict, what you're trying to do is stop the conflict when what you need to do is actually learn from the conflict, the deeper issues that you need to address. And it was the most, it was the most powerful book for me when I got it as a younger leader. And it really changed the directory of my life, direction of my life. It's interesting to hear, hear you recommend that book because the next question is that you wrote the book Tempered Resilience and part mm-hmm. of Tempered Resilience is, hey, the, there's a whole blacksmith analogy in there talking mm-hmm. about, man, you're formed in the trials and the crises and mm-hmm. change in your organization. Uh, yeah. So it somewhat sounds like that book that ministered to you back then uh, is deep within your message and, and your ministry that you wanted to share. So, you know, mm-hmm. for, for young leaders listening to this, just as you said, they just want to end maybe the crisis, the trials that are happening, but instead what you just said, man, learn from them. So how, you know, what advice would you give to young leaders about learning from that and leading through it instead of just hoping it was over? Yeah. So, so what I always say is what you learn, what we learned about tempered resilience was the book I wrote after I started talking about people about uh, adaptive leadership, which is the book that canoeing the mountains was the book that came out. So when the terrain is changed and the world in front of you is no longer the same as the world behind you, and you literally don't have best practices and you have to learn as you go, what's going to be hard is when you call the people to that and say, Hey, I don't have the, I don't have the answers, but we're going to learn as we go. We're going to get transformed. God's going to use this to change us. People resist you. When they resist you, the most soul-sucking thing for most leaders is not the challenges of the world. It's the resistance of your own people in, in your congregation. It's your own team. It is the thing that just, it's sabotage is what we talk about. So tempered resilience was really about how to believe that, you know, the three most important things are one, leaders are formed in the leading. So if you're having a challenge right now, it's not that you miss, messed up or missed a class or didn't read a book or miss some insight, this is actually normal. It's really normal for you because you became a leader right after you were good at something that was not leading. Right? So I would say, <laughs> I became a leader because I was a good talker. Like, mm-hmm. There's a difference between three points in a poem or a good exegesis paper and leading a people, right? So you become a leader in the, in the crisis of leadership, in the crucible of leadership. You then have to develop honest, vulnerable self-reflection. If you are only defending yourself, you will never be able to be open enough to the shaping that God wants to do in your life. So you've got to create the capacity for honest, vulnerable self-reflection. And then the third thing is you've got to have a relationships to hold you. And I always say, if, if I can give any leaders a young, any gift, it's to believe that for the rest of your life, if you are leading anything, you will always have a spiritual director, a therapist, a coach, or at least a mentor that you will never lead alone. Like I'm like, like I'm a Presbyterian. We don't believe in, in bishops, but if I was a bishop, (laughs) which which tells you something about me, you know, I've got bishop fantasies, but if I was a bishop, I would, I would insist that that if you try to lead anything alone, I'm going to consider that leadership malpractice. It's that dangerous. So when you see like mega church pastors who have gone on record saying, I can only talk to someone who has a bigger church than me. That is nothing but arrogance and toxicity because you can, we can all learn from anybody trustworthy who you allow yourself to be vulnerable with. If you allow yourself to be vulnerable to anybody trustworthy, 
therapist, spiritual director, coach, mentor, then that's the healthiest thing you can do for the rest of your life. You know, leaders learn by leading. Uh, I remember that really standing out to me in the book. And one of the conversations that we were having around it, I, I love reading presidential biographies. And mm -hmm. you think of Abraham Lincoln, you think of FDR, you think of those presidents that we think of as, oh, they were great leaders. Well, guess what they did? They led through a crisis. There was something that popped up that they had to lead through. And I, I love what you say. You think you're a leader, but you're a great you know, communicator. Have you led through something yet? Uh, so you almost, you almost got to get the, bl the blood on your Jersey, uh, the dirt on your Jersey before, you know, you can claim the, the leadership badge. And that's kind of what you're saying there. Yeah. I, I also, the, the piece on relationships, I think it's so easy for us to overlook that. And what you're saying is, man, I'm out front. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm leading my ministry. I'm, I'm leading my business. I'm out front. And, and it's easy to, to get isolated. And of course, that's where the enemy wants us in isolation, not surrounded by relationships. So how, how does a young leader, you mentioned coach, mentor, these type of things, maybe, maybe somebody raises their hand and goes, okay, I, I hear you, Todd. I, I need to get some relationships in my life. How can they seek those out in relationships that are helpful and not isolating? So, so two things. Let me just say this, um, just to highlight your point. I really appreciate this train of thought. Um, we know this. This statistic. I mean, I spent all my life in the leadership literature, right? I spent my life in two groups of, of, of material. One is spiritual formation out of the out of the Christian tradition, out of the church. The other is leadership literature. Leadership literature tells us that as you get older, you get less relationships. As you get higher into leadership, you get less relationships. And if you're a man, you didn't start with enough to start with. So most men, by the time they get into any leadership position, are already underrelated. They already have not nearly enough relationships. So I always say you need partners, mentors, and friends. You need all three. Partners are people who care more about the mission than they care about you. Right? That's how you know they're a partner. Is if you stopped going, they'd keep going. That if push came to shove, they wouldn't sacrifice the ministry to be loyal to you because they know the ministry is God's, not yours. Many of us confuse that one a lot. Um, that's why loyalty is so dysfunctional in a leader. Asking for loyalty is a sign of dysfunction almost every time. Friends are people who care more about you than they care about the ministry. And, they need, and you need those people in your life. You need the people who will say to you, look, I know that you, I mean, I always say, I got people who say to me, congratulations, Todd, you got another book out. And I'll go, I know, isn't it great? You want to read it? And they'll go, no, I don't even care about that. Stuff. Like if I was, I'd be in your class, right? I don't care about that. What I want to know is, are you going to get time to go be, to travel and go see your kids? Or are you going to get, are you and Beth going to get some time together? Or are you going to get enough time outside in nature that you need, right? Mentors are people who care about me, for the sake of what God's mission has been put in front of me. They care about me and they care about me for more than me. They care about the impact of my life even bigger than me. The key isn't to go around and go, how do I find the perfect mentor? There's lots of places where you can't. I mean, our, our company does coaching, right? The most important thing is that you show up as a learner. I would say if you start show up as a learner, the teacher will appear. If you're a person who is, I mean, I always teach, I teach my doctoral students. I can guarantee you, you'll find all the mentors you'll need in your life. If you can master one question, here's the question you have to master. I'll give it to everybody and you can write it down and you can have it for free. And the question is, can I buy you a cup of coffee? 
If you ask anybody you trust, can I buy you a cup of coffee? Can I get 25 minutes of your time over a cup of coffee? And you show up honest and vulnerable, you will get mentoring. More important is that you show up as a learner than you look for the perfect teacher and you'll be able to find mentoring your whole life. That's great. And I, I love what you say too about, um, you know, potentially seeking a counselor in certain situations. I feel yeah. like that is looked so poorly upon sometimes in, in that kind of lead pastor role of like, no, I'm fine. I'm good. But like, you know, having a counselor at times, especially when you're going through a trial of some sort, having an independent voice in your life, speak truth and love into you is, um, is so important, but yet so overlooked. So I love, I love well, that you well, on that. I mean, counseling usually shows up when you start realizing that your issues from your family of origin that are, are beginning to affect the way you're living now. So most of us run into it when we become parents. Oh my gosh, I don't want to be a parent the way my dad was sometimes, or I want to be a parent the way my dad was in this way, but not this way. Like Pete Scazzaro says, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. And you know, the recognition that our yep. family patterns make an impact. As soon as you hit that, I would say, go find yourself a counselor, go find yourself someone trained in what to do with that, because that's not something that you just want to take on by yourself. I know you've, you've hit on this. I feel like throughout the, our whole conversation, but you know, as you, as you look at younger leaders out there, are there certain qualities or maybe characteristics that you would tell them, Hey, focus on these things right now. I wish I would have when I was you know younger in my leadership. Is there anything like that that you'd want to point out specifically? Well, so this is another place where um, even the leadership literature helps us, right? Like there's, this, if you think about the notion of like, what's the raw material of a leader, the raw material of a leader is a healthy identity. And what I mean by that for as a Christian is in, in the Christian church, we mean our identity is in Christ, not in the approval of the church. Our identity is found, I, the way I put it is when you look at Jesus's ministry, the most powerful part of Jesus' ministry is he was not grounded in whether or not he would be success at bringing the kingdom of God. He was grounded in the fact that he knew he was loved by his father. And so knowing he was loved by his father, he could continue to be faithful. So you see it actually in the very beginning of Mark's gospel. It says at this time, Jesus came to be baptized at this time. He came to be baptized. He hears the voice say, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Okay. So when was God pleased with Jesus at this time? At what time? Before he had done a miracle, before he preached a sermon, before he cast out a demon, before he confronted a power, before he'd done anything at all. God was already pleased with him. So what I want for young leaders is you need such a deep transformative relationship with Jesus that you know you are loved because you just may not be successful. It might not be yours. You might be called to be faithful to with a group of people who are going to die in the wilderness and not make it to the promised land. You might be you might be the person whose job is to be faithful in these moments, and so it's not if you if you need to be pleasing people or to be a success, you will become fragile. You need to be rooted in the love of God who loves you already. That is great. I was talking with with Mike Kelsey who also who used to co-host this podcast, and we're kind of talking through success and faithfulness, and it's so easy to get those two things 
confused uh, mm-hmm. that success, faithfulness is success and vice versa. And he's, he just simply told me, he goes, man, God is the goal. Serving God is the goal. And here, what you just said there is just a reminder to let that be your identity, not anything that you're leading, not any position title, it's just a much needed reminder for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, hey, let's let's move to the quick hitter questions here, Todd. And these are going to be short one minute answers. So we'll get started with this one. What is your ideal daily routine? So what time do you wake up, get in the office, go to bed, all that good stuff? Uh, I wake up um, at least an hour to an hour and a half before my first thing on my calendar. I make coffee. Um, I listen to an app called pray as you go or Lexio 365. So that's, so I get to listen to somebody else, read me scripture. And then I slowly enter my day. Usually, um, if I, I try to get some work done and then I want to take a break and do something with my body outside, if I can, if I, where I'm writing in my house in Idaho, it's when I go for a hike and I process my morning brain work, I try to have people in the afternoon and I try to have my evenings free to be with my family. And I just, repeat and partly for me after years of being in churches where I worked in the evenings and I worked on weekends now I've got a different routine where I get to work during the day and I get to spend more time with my wife and more time in the weekends actually restoring my soul so it's it's better I mean I travel a lot that's the other the other part is the amount of travel I do is so high that I'm trying to keep that rhythm is hard so when I'm home that's what I try to do Um, I I feel like this next question can be tricky some people believe in these and some don't but do do you have a a favorite personality uh, test if so what is it no I really don't (laughs) I mean mean, this is what I would say is the personality test whatever you use um, I, and I know them. I know them all. Myers Briggs, Enneagrams. We use Strength Finders and stuff. To me, the most important thing is for you to be able to say, "That's me," and I want to be the best version of myself. So I don't have a favorite. What I think is, it's like almost any tool you use that will help you get to more self awareness, and that self awareness leads you to be able to say, "I want to be the best version of myself." I would say, God didn't ask you to be something you're not. There's an old rabbinic poem, a tale that says, when you get to heaven and God wants to judge you, he will not say, why were you not Moses? He'll say, I already had a Moses. It's why weren't you you? I needed you, not Mo- not another Moses. And I think any test or thing that helps you get clear on who you are so that you can then be the best version of yourself helps you in the right direction. I knew when Dan asked that question, it was going to either that you were going to deep dive into many of them or you're going to be like, <laughs> yeah, they're all not, you know, just pick and choose. So that's great. Answer. So I give, so I give you both. Yeah. There awesome. you go. <laughs> what, what is an unusual habit that helps you in your leadership? So um, I told you I was a good talker. One of the things I've worked on for the last about eight years or so is I have a skilled game I play where I'm trying to work on better being a better question answer question asker so what I do is now when I'm in a meeting if I make a statement then I make myself ask two questions that I don't know the answer before I make another statement and it forces me to work on I want to ask better questions and I want to get better at asking questions. And I have found that those two skills 
are changing the way that I relate to people. They're like the biggest skills that I work on. That's great. I, I really like that idea. Next question. I, other than Lectio 365, uh, my wife has that and loves it. But what is an uh, what's one of your favorite apps on your phone? On my phone? Spotify. Music. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. Yeah. What, what has been the best book that you've read in the past six months? Ezra Klein, Why We Are Polarized. What was your biggest takeaway from the book? Why was it your favorite? He's he's a person who's done a deep dive into political polarization. And what he basically points to is that we get polarized because we would rather identify with a tribe of people who share our beliefs than have a strong sense of working across lines mm. to come up with common good. And so I think you see this. I think many pastors that I work with said all of a sudden they realized during the pandemic that people were more aligned over what political party they were in than what scripture. I mean, people in small groups who read the same scripture were polarizing over what they listened to during podcasts or people were polarizing over what newscasts they were. I had so many pastors say to me, I couldn't figure out why I could. One pastor said to me, I've worked 31 years in this congregation. I wonder if I've wasted my time because as soon as our country got polarized politically, my people were vile to each other. That was his phrase, vile to each other. Wow. Because they began to mimic the political rhetoric of our country. And I began to try to figure try to figure that one out. And part of what Ezra Klein pointed to is a lot of research that says people have unconscious tribes that they want to be part of that are even more important than their deepest values. And that was very, I mean, I, I'm writing a book right now on what I think is the greatest crisis of the pandemic, which was a crisis of discipleship. That how do we think about discipleship as an adaptive leadership problem? Because our best practices of the past left us high and dry. You know, this from Tom Rainier's work that, you know, basically we are accelerating the decline in the church way faster than we thought we would. And most crises in the past led for the church to grow. This crisis, it's accelerated decline. So we've got a deep problem about community polarization and discipleship that need to be worked on. Yeah, that's fascinating. Last question for you today is, uh, what's one sentence of advice that you would want to give somebody going into a leader leadership position for the first time? Be a learner and you will end up being a good leader. Learner is the primary identity. And if you forget that, if you, that feels odd to you, remember that the Greek word for disciple means learner. Like our birthright is that we are to be learners. We are so convinced. And literally the scripture says, not every one of you should become teachers, but everyone should be a disciple, make disciples of all nations. So be a learner and leadership will follow. Well, Todd, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. And thank you for listening. We hope this has been helpful to you and your leaders and if it has, please head over to wherever you're listening to the podcast. Leave us a rating and review to help other young leaders like yourself find the podcast. And we'll see you next time.